Moto One Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Creative Riding, the motorcycle podcast that brings you two-wheel topics from around the globe. Tonight's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, go to www.patreon.com forward slash creative writing to find out more. Now, to our regularly scheduled show, show, Good evening. This is Junkie Tugman. My voice has been devastated due to the air quality in Los Angeles. So I'm getting some assistance from SpeakBot 9000. Thanks to Clogman's Pickles and Crider's Leathers for providing funding for this feature. Tonight's Spooky Spokes will be hosted and narrated by Crondon Gladstone while I'm recovering. Dick in the dirt. From these fires. Thank you and enjoy the show. Beep. Boop. This is Crompton. Old junkie asked me to sit in tonight. He, on account of he's feeling like a bag of turds. A hammered bag of turds. But that's alright. We're gonna open up Spooky Spokes this year. A little bit different. Junkie was telling me, You know, Crompton, I really like what that girl Miranda was doing with the uh, ghost biker exploration sort of stuff. I kind of want to do something inspiring myself, only I ain't got time. Grondon, I'm going to go out and try to research something in my town. Something that's interesting and supposedly haunted here. Something spooky. Grondon, if you could help me out on this week's show, on account of my voice being all wrecked up from the goddamn hair quality, I'd be highly obliged. And I said, Junkie... I looked right. I looked deep into his dark, beady little disgusting eyes. I said, "No problem, my friend. Feel better. And come back next week. You want me to just bullshit for a little bit? Oh, you bet, Junkie was prepped. That little mofo. He surprised me sometimes. He said, Crompton, you don't gotta bullshit. I done recorded something months, ages ago." I just want you to play it on my show. Do the segues. Play a little guitar, maybe. I said, Junkie. I looked right into that dripping, juicy, greasy face of his, and I said, All right, buddy. You're kind of disgusting to look at, but you are my good friend. I'll do it. So I'm here tonight in lieu of our friend and producer. Junkie Turkman, or whatever the fuck he does, I don't know. We're gonna get into some spooky spokes right now. Right now. Yes, 
right now. A pre-recorded bit by our own friend and greasy little meatball, Junkie Turdman. Everybody, this is Junk the Turd Man. I sound a little bit too cheery for Spooky Spokes, don't I? I just spent like a half an hour, maybe more, recording part of Spooky Spokes for you. And then I realized, what the hell am I doing? That was way too long. So listen up. I picked a, I, every year I've done a Spooky Spoke as well. And uh, this year is no different. Last year, I think I covered mm, the Parsonage for J, uh, famous for JPL, which is Jack uh, Parsons. He helped invent what is now NASA slash JPL. Uh, brilliant, brilliant rocket scientist, literally. But also into the cult, uh, the OTO, and uh, invoking demons into the world. So he was just a crazy dude. And, um, you know... I did that. I did the suicide bridge. I don't remember if I did the Cobb Estate or if I just talked to Wiggins about the Cobb Estate. We should ride up there because I've ridden through it before. It doesn't appear all that haunted to me, but whatever. It's a haunted forest, right? Um, there's I, I sang in a uh, spook, creepy tunnel, dark tunnel down in the Arroyo one year. Um, I forget what all I've done, but that's just in Pasadena, right? That's or in Altadena. That's just a couple places around here. I thought. Last year, I almost rode to where the Black Dahlia was killed. You know, if you ever look up the Black Dahlia murder, uh, it's an unsolved murder. The, supposedly, they found out who did it this year. I ain't buying it. But, uh, yeah, that city has changed. And a lot of Los Angeles has changed. And that's just one more thing that kind of adds to the history of Los Angeles, right? And I thought, there's a bunch of spooky places. When we were talking to Miranda Young from Ghost Biker Explorations, and I said, hey, Miranda, you know, chances are somebody has died somewhere at some point in time. Like, does this haunting always have to take place at an old rundown house or like an old castle or something, you know, or an old church? And she said, absolutely not. Like, there could just be a street corner where somebody got hit on a bicycle and died, you know, and it's just... So every place has a possibility of being haunted. And to me, one of the spookiest things about L.A. is I, I don't know if Marilyn Monroe died here, but, I mean, there's plenty of people that come here, do crazy shit, and die. And there's also people that were here before that. And my spooky spokes this year is going to focus on that. I live, if you were privy to the Motorcycle Podcasters Challenge last year, you may remember that I picked uh, Junipero Sarah as one of my streets. And... I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I used to live right down from Mission San Gabriel. And uh, Father Junipero Serra was one of the uh, Franciscan friars who came to California in the 1700s to establish a mission system to do a bunch of shit, but also uh, basically kind of assimilate the, uh, the natives here. And to me, that's always creepy because the Mission San Gabriel has kind of a nutty, creepy history. I have this book called The California Desperados, and it's, um, pardon me, it is stories in the outlaws' words and in written accounts, like that were uh, written by the judges at the time, 
in uh, and California wasn't even a state yet. I mean, we weren't a state until 1850, right after the gold rush. And so before that, we were Spain. And all these accounts that are written were written from basically people that were here as Californios. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting. There wasn't really the uh, American court system here yet because we weren't America yet. And so it's interesting to me that sort of history and the sort of stuff that happened back then. Now, I was, you know, there was a bunch of stuff that happened around the Mission San Gabriel as far as a stagecoach robber that was really famous at the time, but his story didn't involve tragedy. But there doesn't need to be a whole bunch of tragedy for it to be spooky spokes because the whole mission, in my eyes, is surrounded by tragedy. California, obviously, uh, you know, before the 1500s, when the Spanish hit the shores of South America, you know, 1492, just eight years shy of 1500, um, things changed. And the ghosts of California and the ghosts of what used to be here have now locked themselves into California's history. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus on for this year's Spooky Spoke. Not necessarily a person that died or a person that haunts a particular or purportedly haunts a particular place, but the ghosts of California, sort of. And so my spooky spoke starts at the Mission San Gabriel only 10,000 years ago. You know me. I can't do anything just right up front. I have to go back in time. And also thank you, Miranda, from Ghost Biker Explorations for inspiring me to do a little bit of research and give you more than just the surface story. So here's my spooky spoke. I will try to make it quick and not a half hour again. All right, Los Angeles, 10,000 years ago. Emma from Motorcycles and Misfits was probably just a little girl, and I hadn't even been born yet at that time. Many First Nations tribes call California home, as well as all of the United States, uh, actually all of North and South American continent. Uh, The Tongva people... They were the people that uh, lived here where I live in the San Gabriel Valley. And they migrated from the Sonoran Desert possibly as far back as eight to 10,000 years ago. Now, most Western First Nation tribes are cut off from the rest of the country by the Rocky Mountains mostly. And from the Rocky Mountains West, we have these crazy mountains here and there where like the, uh, the Pacific uh, plate tectonic plate and the i don't know what they call it the atlantic plate butt up against each other we have this nice ripple effect so after the plains uh once you hit the rockies it's all up and downhill from there but the california tribes we're further sequestered by the coastal ranges that extend all the way from alaska down into modern day baja california but at that time it was there was no countries here it was just one large piece of land and european settlers that landed on the east side of the continent brought uh, horses with them well the west coast nations we got the spanish and although the spanish did have horses uh we didn't get a bunch of horses loose or stolen and then like running around the plains like the counterpart uh tribes the you know the west coast nations uh counterparts did in the plains um and that'll be important later. So the Tongvas, who uh, they occupy much of what is now the Los Angeles County, extending from the Channel Islands, uh, you know, 
uh, Santa Cruz and Catali- Santa Catalina and something else. There's, there's four of them out there. Uh, and I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think Island of the Blue Dolphin was written about the Channel Islands. So the girl in that book would have been a Tongva. And uh, Catalina, keep it motorcycle related, you know, the Catalina Grand Prix ran out there in like the 1950s. Then they stopped doing it. And they preserve that island pretty well. They preserve all of the Channel Islands. And I think the Tongva would like it that way too, kind of to preserve, um, you know, they were custodians of the land uh, thousands of years ago and they kept it pretty pristine. And uh, so it's kind of nice. But they, I went to the Catalina Grand Prix they had about 10 years ago. Um, and that's the last one they had. They didn't have any after that. But they were going to revive it. And then like, and eh, nope, Catalina is going to stay pristine. So I did go over there for a motorcycle event. That is a few miles off the coast of LA. And so the Tongvas lived from there out in the ocean all the way into what is now San Bernardino and Riverside until you get to those uh, mountain ranges out there. And so they lived in the ba- the LA basin, basically. They're surrounded by foothills and some mountains, they're blocked in actually. The rough mountains start uh, a little ways out. We have the Santa Monica's, we have the San Gabriel's. Those go back pretty far and they extend up into the Sierra Nevadas and stuff like that. So we're kind of trapped here in the basin by the the ocean at the west, the mountains around um, you know, most of it, and then to the south out there by uh, Palm Springs and stuff, you go out and it's the desert. So they were kind of blocked in. And since they didn't have horses uh, running wild from settlers, they really, warfare was, you know, would have been a super long range and impractical task. So it wasn't really feasible to do that. And hunting was the same way. So instead, the California coastal tribes had life pretty simple. They didn't have these big, crazy wars like the East Coast tribes did. And they didn't have... Um, a crazy amount of uh, settlers pushing them. But that's not to say that there were none. We'll talk about that in a second. But life was pretty peaceful and simple compared to um, a lot of the plains uh, and a lot of the the Northeast um, tribes um, had it. The Tongva traded with the Chumash. If you've ever heard of Chumash Casino uh, or the Chumash, there's like a bunch of stuff named after them. I think Babe's Ride Out was uh, near the Chumash River or something like that uh, this few weeks ago. And so the Chumash is the native tribe along with the Tataviam or Tataviam. I hope I'm saying that right, up to the north. The Serrano uh, people also were up there. The Cahuillas were out to the east, and the Lucenos were in the south. And I think if you heard me go out to um, when I got the reservation name for the motorcycle challenge a couple years ago, I think I was out at in um, Palm Springs. It's a Cahuilla uh, band out there. So also some of the native names around L.A., are reminders of the ghosts of the past. And they're not spooky when you hear them on the news every morning, like Cahuenga, uh, Topanga, uh, cities like Azusa, areas like Tahunga Big and Little Tahunga Canyon, which is actually where the SoCal Norton Owners Club is going to go on a ride this weekend if it's not on fire. But there's other names which are totally lost to time. And there's places like Long Beach that were super important to the Tongva. There's actually... Puvuunga, which is where they believed life sprang from. And there's a springs down there that's now on like a high school campus, I think. And this is like the springs where all life for the Tongva began. 
It's like their center of origin. But also, Long Beach was a huge city, and um, Pavuunga is right near Long Beach State. And my my wife went to Long Beach State, and she heard that it had been a haunted or a native burial ground. That's not 100% true, but it was the native uh, beginning, the birthplace. And also, Roland Sands just had his Moto Beach Classic at Bolsa Chica State Beach. That is another super significant uh, area for the Tongva. Um, and it's part of a wetlands and, and it's part of their sacred, sacred ground over there. But, uh, one of the villages in Long Beach was, uh, Teva Ajanga, I think is how it's pronounced. And, um, Awaanga, Puvaunga, like I said, Puente Hills was, uh, Ajaravanga. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the LA Arboretum right down from me was Aliopkinga. Beautiful still. That's Brand preserved by the Arboretum, but you can probably tell kind of maybe what it looked like a few hundred years ago. I'm not 100% sure how much it's been um, messed with, but there are a lot of uh, ponds, a lot of little forests and thickets, and it's beautiful. So modern, there's a lot of modern things that are still honoring the the, um, Tongva people of this valley. And uh, up up until 500 years ago, we'll zoom forward. We'll zoom forward a few thousand years to keep this quick. We talk about American settlement uh, from the Pilgrims and the the explorers and the colonies and New England and all that stuff, and how they moved west and settled North America. But that was like the 1600s, the 1700s, and we didn't even make it out into California until after the Gold Rush. That's when we decided it was an important place to have. Um, hashtag Kuwait. <laughs> uh, but you know, we, we think of, you know, we get taught actually in school about the ex- Western, Western expansion and tons of movies get made about it and all this and stuff. But 1492 sailed the sea of blue, an asshole named Mr. Magoo. Um, the guy, the, um, Columbus, he landed in just eight years shy of 1500 off the coast of South America. And uh, so Spanish explorers touched down in the Americas a good, you know, 100, 200 years before the English do. And they begin exploration and conquest of the native people. And that's an unfortunate part because that's also, uh, along with the Tongva, we lose like the Aztecs, the Olmecs, the, uh, all the uh, crazy Mesoamerican tribes and stuff like that. Later, the British, French, Portuguese, Russian, and Dutch would also take a little bit of the New World. Um, and Spain, it laid conquest to m- most of North and South America. They didn't go up into what is uh, modern-day Canada. They didn't hit a lot of like Washington and Oregon and Idaho, but everything else, like the Spanish were there first, pretty much. Um, <clears throat> Britain held Eastern Canada, and basically what's New England? Uh, Portugal, of course, formed what's Brazil. That's why they speak Portuguese in Brazil and Spanish everywhere else in South America. Russia had Alaska. Uh, the Dutch had a couple little islands. I forget which ones. Probably Nova Scotia and something else, Nova Dusha. Um, and during this time, the conquistadors killed 8 million indigenous peoples. Uh, nowadays, they call it like the first genocide of the new world, basically. Um, and Ponce de Leon, he conquered Florida in 1513. If you think Columbus landed in 1492, eight years shy of 1500. 
And Ponce de Leon's already conquered all of Florida, but by 1513, that means Cuba had probably been taken. And a lot of uh, South America, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. Cortez, he waged, uh, waged a three-year war against the Aztecs, killing a quarter of a million people alone during the siege of Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan was like the Aztecs' capital city, and it's also Mexico's capital city. It's now Mexico City, and just outside Mexico City, similar to the missions up and down the California coast, they build on top of old... Uh, a lot of a lot of societies do this, build on top of ancient... <coughs> excuse me, ruins. Underneath Mexico City is actually Tenochtitlan, and some of the Mayan temples and, and uh, pyramids still exist, um, or the Aztec uh, temples exist right outside the city. Um, Modern-day Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Missouri, Louisiana, and Alabama were all taken over by conquistadors like De Soto, Vasquez, De Coronado, and the weirdest one, which means cowhead, Cabeza de Vaca. And of course, that includes our Tongva friends here in California. And despite Columbus being famous for encountering the first natives in the Americas, that was South America. Hernando de Soto was actually the first European to encounter North American First Nations tribes as the Spanish came up through Florida into Georgia and the Carolinas. And in Alabama, he actually fought a super long drawn out battle with this guy named Tuscaloosa. And a lot of the places in the South and especially in Alabama honor the uh, he uh, Tuscaloosa was a very brave uh, warrior chief, and a lot of the stuff in in the South, um, some of the native names honor like the super brave, <clears throat> tough guys that you know were leading the cities at that time. Why fight with Tuscaloosa? Uh, well, one of the prominent tribesmen didn't do something that DeSoto wanted to. So DeSoto cut off his arm and saying, Hey dude, this was going to happen if you don't <laughs> listen to what I say. And like the natives, I believe Tuscaloosa was, um, a Muscogee, uh, chief. And all of a sudden they drew down on the Spanish and they're like, bro, you just done effed up. And they started firing on him. So the Spanish retreated. And I think it took them quite a while to actually, um, win the uh, the city there where they were in. I think it was called Mabila. So let's fast forward 200 years ago. Wow, America is already a country. We were a country like what, 240 or 50 years ago? So 200 to 150 years ago, um, up until 1794. So well, 20 years after America has declared independence from England and has become its own country, Spain still occupied Florida and pretty much everything along the bottom of the map of the United States. They, it was like Mississippi, Alabama, um, and Louisiana, but not only Louisiana, but draw a line up the Mississippi River, everything west of the Mississippi. So not only did they... Uh, occupy Florida and all those little bottom states from Louisiana and the Mississippi up all the way over until I think they didn't have like Idaho and Washington and Oregon. Nobody wanted those states then. We still don't now. Just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, during this time, the West Coast of modern-day California and Baja California, Mexico, it was the mission period. And it affected 
this had the biggest impact on the coastal tribes, including our friends, the Tongva. And this is where it gets spooky to me. This is why I chose it as spooky spoke. Um, not, I mean, not only the 8 million people dead, uh, from fighting and, and disease and, and, uh, stuff like that. But now we're moving into like what gets real for me, because this is where the Spanish are building missions up and down the coast from 1769 to 1833, 18, 18- 33. What was happening in your state in 1833? Cause we were still Spain over here. Um, and Catholic priests of the Franciscan order. I have no idea what Franciscan order is. I don't really know much about most religions, but for whatever reason they were, the friars are the ones that established the missions along the coast. Uh, and the, among other things, I mean, I think that they were meant to serve other purposes, but one of the things was to evangelize and, assimilate the native populations in Alta California to Christianity. I think it was part of Spain's policy of like secular rule versus like, you know, whatever citizenship. So anyway, these guys, they brought horses, cattle, European fruits, vegetables, plant, weird plants, um, and the whole technology of ranching and the missions pretty much were like little ranchos. And then a little Pueblo would usually pop up around that. And, it also brought a new purpose for the natives. We need somebody to work this rancho, right? And you are our new, uh, our new muse. Um, we've just simulated you. So to be brief, the natives were either lured through trade. Sometimes they came for curiosity. Sometimes they were given beads and other little trinkets or food. And then eventually they were just forced to relocate to the missions. The friars would baptize them and rename them a neophyte, which I think means newly born or something like that. And they were now considered citizens and were no longer free. <laughs> now that they're a citizen, you can't leave this mission. And so that started to cause problems right off the bat. Um, and since they were now considered citizens, they had to work and worship the church under the friar's rule. And so as you can imagine, some got angry with the conditions at the mission or the way they were treated uh, because obviously – just because you baptize someone and you call them, hey, now you're, you know, you're our citizen, doesn't always mean you treat them the best, right? <laughs> Especially if you see them still as weird um, pagan, right? And so some of them ran away, and some of them the Spanish would actually let them run away, and then they'd follow them, and then the rest of the tribe was like, Carl, man, did you see? You got a tail, bro. You got to lose your tail first, because then what the Spanish would do is round up the whole village and bring it back. So it's like we let Carl uh, totter off through the woods and kind of just watched him. And once we found the village, guess what? Now we have a bunch of people to work the missions and a lot of work for the friars to do. God save or God praise, whatever, right? So the Tongva of modern, the San Gabriel area now, they attempted to drive the Spanish away. But like I said earlier, they were pretty peaceful. They didn't, it's not like they hunted on horseback. They didn't really have warriors. They weren't a warrior society. They were a, a hunter-gatherer society and they basically lived in unison with most of the tribes around them for the most part um, and settled disputes, you know, the tribal way. They didn't have international disputes at this point. So what could they do? They really didn't have uh, much of a choice. So they got subjected to pretty much the same fate as the rest of the coastal tribes. Um, and despite the thing is, is they would try to carry on cultural practices that they've been doing for 10,000 years, dances, um, ceremonies and stuff like that. And many Tongva 
were punished and reprimanded and forced to stop. So as you can imagine, they didn't like this. And when I lived in San Diego, uh, there was I went to school with a lot of uh, Kumie, and I actually spent like when I first moved to California, I spent like more time on the Barona Reservation than like outside of it pretty much um and the culture and everything runs deep there and uh there was it didn't go so well for the friars in san diego let's just say but everywhere i mean you can imagine if people came in and didn't like the way you were doing what you want to do i don't like your tiny house i don't like your uh urban uh farming or urban exploration um whatever they those like guys that go out and pick weeds and eat them in the cities like i don't like your hipster way of life uh you got to do this old european way so basically they forced the tonga to do all this stuff and you, you can imagine there was some uprisings um there was a medicine woman here a tongva medicine woman named toya perina and she's now like a local uh, folk hero and she basically just became a central figure in history. She tried to rally her friends and family <clears throat> against the uh, the Spanish or against the mission. Uh, and there was some historian that got her story or like got wind of it and wrote her out to be like this witch that was using magic to influence the soldiers and the natives. And he really uh, sealed her fate. She was arrested, baptized, and then they just shipped her off to Monterey where she got married to a Spanish soldier and was like, hey, dude, we're going to like force you into society. And she eventually blended in. And I imagine that um, life could have been worse for her, you know, like having to marry a soldier and become part of Spanish society uh, was the least of the bad things that could have happened to her. But you are talking about like think of if an American settler had been uh, taken to a native uh, village and forced to live their way that they're unaccustomed to. Like it's you, you might end up liking it or Stockholm syndrome or whatever, but uh, I'm sure at first you would really miss uh, the, the way we live um, or the way that whatever the settlers lived. Um, so anyway, the real guy at the center of that rebellion was named Nicolas Jose by the Spanish. I don't know what his Tongva name was, but he was a native and he had powers as a native. See, as the, as he became a citizen and, and gained uh, trust, they gave him powers. He was an alcalde, which is sort of like a, a judge, I guess, of the government style at the time. And he's the one that tried to rally the troops and make a long story short. I won't go into the whole history of it, but they failed. So I'm not 100% sure what happened to him, but he's also a folk hero nowadays for Tongva that still uh, survive and say, hey, listen, like we we didn't want to be oppressed by the mission and we were. Um, Friars in San Diego, like I said, not so lucky. Uh, some of those guys did not uh, leave with their skin um, or their lives. And so, and I, you know, the friars in San Diego, uh, there's all sorts of stuff there from, from the missions and the presidios because San Diego was like a, a fortification. So it's even crazier. Eventually, um, like I said earlier, they brought cattle, they brought horses, I'm guessing they brought sheep. They brought all this agriculture and ranching, which means they were diverting water. They were using irrigation. They were doing all this crazy stuff. And whenever a natural drought hit, you know, sometimes the natives would burn stuff. And and if we did that today, I doubt California would have so many wildfires. They used to mitigate that by pre-burning everything. And they'd done it for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and when, when droughts hit, there wasn't really that much grass or trees or everything because they'd burn every year. They knew when, you know, 
keep the little stuff down and let the let the old stuff stay. Um, and so there wasn't all this crazy vegetation. And when a drought would hit, I don't think it was that bad. But now you got cattle. And tons of cattle means tons of water. You've seen a cow, you know how much they drink. Plus ranching and irrigation to these crop fields that aren't natural. Um, like I said before, the Tongva were hunters and gatherers. And so they would gather what grew at the time and hunt what was around at the time. They wouldn't artificially make these uh, things available. And so when it, when when conditions got bad, like when a drought hit, a lot of them had their fate sealed because now they are dependent on the mission for food and for water and for living and and basically for survival at that point. And now you can't leave. So I'm going to wrap up my spooky spoke here. <clears throat> and this is the spookiest part of all to me. Um, Spain had a system of categorizing people based on their race and ethnical background and financial um, past, I guess, financial, whatever your family uh had if you were come from uh, a rich family or not. And that's how they were able to take over so much of the new world. Because if you think about it, how did they take over all of South America, almost all in, of North America? Um, hey, they reclassified everybody as Spanish. I think all you had to do was write a letter to like an administrative person and they would judge you, like classify you somewhere and throw you in. They had like almost like a caste system. And English settlers, on the other hand, they kind of sought to displace non-whites in the new territory. Everything you can think of uh, after um, we, hey, we cooperated with some people was, hey, we were driving people off our land and all the way until 1830 with the uh, Indian Removal Act or whatever, uh, later into the 1920s, uh, believe it or not, people were still fighting skirmishes to get uh, being removed from land. Um now, this was um, being reclassified as Spanish was kind of important to the Tongva because many became Spanish and then eventually Mexican when Mexico declared independence from Spain in 1821. So many of the First Nations people assumed Mexican identities and uh, a lot of um, slaves also did and a lot anybody. Spain didn't care. You, as long as you got reclassified, you're Spanish. So yay, that's how we can gain so much land and so many people. And that's why in Spain, uh, I'm sorry, in Mexico, what is now Mexico, uh, they have Mo, uh, you know, you look at Mexicans and they don't look Spanish, and, it, and that's quite possible. You look at most quote Americans uh, settlers, and they look European or wherever the hell they came from, right? If you look at most American, um, you know, indigenous people, they look like partially they look like Mexicans. There's a lot of people in Mexico, and and that's kind of weird too because Mexico Mayans look a little bit different than. Um, you know, other, uh, Mexican, uh, heritages. And so it's really interesting. And, and, and Spain just said, Hey, you're all Spanish. <laughs> so when, uh, it was super easy, you know, to, to reclassify everybody. So a lot of Spanish, when you say you're, uh, you know, well, now that you're Mexican after 1821, a lot of Mexicans, you can tell, um, Spanish blood from, non-Spanish blood. And I think there might be something in uh, Mexico about that, you know, like, you know, we're blue blood that might still stand. There might be some stuff like uh, mestizos and whatever like that, that uh, think that they're better than everybody. I have no idea, but it created, definitely created a complex 
caste system. I, I've been in Mexico. I know that the people who look the most indigenous are still kind of shit on by everybody else around there. Um, so it's really, it's actually kind of interesting. Was it good or bad? Who knows? But the point is, is that everybody became Spanish. And eventually... Uh, that kind of worked out for natives because now you're not native, which is even worse than being <laughs> Spanish, right? And worse than being Mexican when you're in a war with America. So heritage was irrelevant. And then uh, the, it was a way for natives to hide basically within this new society. And whether or not, like I said, in, in Mexico, yeah, you're Mexican, but you may still speak the Mayan dialect. In the places that I went to, the the kids, the young kids were not speaking Spanish. And it was great to see that the natives still live on and that we live amongst ghosts in a way, especially in America. How many Native Americans do you know? You might even live in a Native American town and uh, there are probably zero Native Americans in it. So it's really interesting to me. That's why this is the, the mission represented such a spooky spoke to me because for a lot of people who identified as Spanish after being uh, conquered, um, and and to be honest, if you are um, if you're Mexican and you are light skinned, yeah, you probably are Spanish. If you're Mexican and you are darker skinned, you're probably Native American and and if you don't identify that way, you uh, have blended in perfectly. And that's how a lot of Tongva survived. And a lot of Tongva people uh, still, um, I, I've watched a documentary and I have some sources that I may include um, on our web, on our blog uh, about all this research I did. Some of them are um, so attached to the missions because they've, they're, they've been uh Hispanicized, and other ones are like, man, these missions and the mission bells represent everything that tore my people apart 500 years ago. You know, starting 500 years ago, we were we existed a certain way for 10,000 years, and then in the last 500, we've been completely erased and colored over with this new uh, nationality of being Mexican or American and not Tongva anymore. And so it's really interesting to me. Uh, I might, did I say this before? I, uh, since I re-recorded this, I'm not 100% sure that a lot of the Tongva hid in the foothills and um, they were not recorded by the missions. Uh, and so, and then when they were caught, they were treated like outlaws and, and um, dealt with accordingly. And if you were a citizen of the mission, then you were good. If you weren't, guess what? And, um, or hang you or drag you behind a horse. Who knows how they killed people? Um, but a lot of them, if they didn't hide in the foothills, they assumed identities of Californios, which is basically when, when, um, uh, Mexico took over <laughs> one, one independence from Spain. They said, Hey, we're all Californios now. And, uh, so guess what? Everybody in California, yay for you. You're, you're now a Californio. And so the Tongva just did that too. Hey, okay, well now we're Californios. First we were first we were Tongva, then we're subjected to Spanish rule, now we're Mexican rule, and now we're Californios. And eventually California was uh an or was uh, we fought a war with Mexico, if you didn't know this, in 1847. Uh we finally became uh signed a treaty with Mexico and California became a state in 1850. So in many ways, uh that's why it's so crazy here. Um and, and we're so, we're, uh, it still feels very Spanish in, in, um, 
in California today. The spookiest part of all this is that there not only were the Tongvas subjected to Spanish rule and Spanish punishment and Spanish, um, and basically some became Spanish um, and then eventually Mexican, is that there are 6,000 Tongva actual Tongva natives buried at the mission San Gabriel. And so that mission to me, the, the reason I chose that for Spooky Spokes is because it was part of California's history that started making a ghost of things. It started making, uh, you know, taking uh, a group of people and kind of erasing their identities, even though in a weird way it sort of protected who they were because by becoming Mexican and becoming uh, or Spanish and Mexican and now Californian, they were kind of saved. So it's really, really very interesting. But uh, of note, that was my first spooky spoke. Uh, there has been remains found in, on the 405 and there were some remains found, I believe in Alhambra or um, Temple City or something when they were doing some road work there. So it's really interesting. Uh, they're doing construction and every time they find some native remains, they contact you know uh, the liaisons and everybody kind of puts everything on hold and they get everything and relocate it to a proper place or some a safe place. Um, and that just is so crazy to think of like all these places in LA, what's, you know, a hundred feet under the earth is a whole different society that used to live here before the mission system wiped it out and Spanish settlers made a ghost of the Tongva. junk that was good and all but i think you still took half an hour my smelly greasy little friend all right let's get into a first listener submitted spooky spoke and this comes to us from a beautiful gal out there in spooksville A true story, no bull. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with a house that was about a mile or so from where I lived. It was a shabby, huge Victorian with faded gray and weathered shingles, and it sat upon a small cliff on an overgrown lot that overlooked a desolate and expansive marsh. The house was surrounded by a thick wall of some kind of leafless, shoulder-high pricker bushes that managed to catch every leaf and thatch that the ocean wind blew its way. In my mind, the house was always under a gray sky, and the wind howled as you walked as dead leaves spun in small tornadoes under your feet. My fall ritual was to ride my bike to the house all alone and then hide under those bushes covered in leaves, hoping to get a glimpse of whomever might enter or leave that haunted house. To my disappointment, I never saw anyone, even though my spying went on for years and started in broad daylight and would end way past my curfew and into the night. Well, as it does, time passed, I grew up, moved many states away, joined the working world, and started riding motorcycles and never gave that house another thought. Until one day, I returned to my formerly small hometown on business. 
It was in October, and the air was brisk, and the wind blew in that kind of chilly and invigorating way that makes you so glad you ride a motorcycle. The sun had already set, and the sky was a streaky gray, and I bundled up my papers and laptop and hopped on my bike and headed toward my hotel. I felt so good riding all snuggled up in my leather jacket with the cold wind on my face that I passed right by my stop and decided to explore my town to see how things had changed. Somehow, without my knowledge or permission, I found myself stopped and idling in front of that old gray house, engulfed in the sounds of the moaning wind, my bike rumbling, and my own breathing. As my bike and I both expelled thick vapor clouds into the air, I realized that in spite of how this town had grown, there were no cars driving by, not one person appeared walking by in an evening walk, and there were no streetlights lit in that area. I hit the kill switch on my bike and listened as the engine ticked into the wind. As I took off my helmet and put down the side stand, dead leaves swirled around my feet. Suddenly, I felt like a kid again, brave and scared, all at the same time. Leaning on my bike, facing the front of the house, my mind drifted back in time. Suddenly, I was aware that there was someone loudly breathing right behind me. Almost knocking my bike over, my keys fell onto the ground. I bent to pick them up and turned around and came eye to eye with an enormous white bull. The animal's humped back stood taller than me and his horns pointed forward, aimed at me and my bike. The brass ring through his nose glinted in the moonlight and two huge angry streams of vapor billowed from his enormous nostrils. I stood frozen in place. The bulls angrily snorted and pawed toward me. I was afraid to stay. I was afraid to run. It's not clear to me what happened next, but somehow, suddenly, I was on my bike skidding out on gravel and almost wiping out, swerving, hyperventilating, sweating, and not looking back. Only the next day did I realize that I lost my helmet and laptop. I don't know what to make of what happened that night. That town does not allow farm animals. There are no farms that are located in that suburban community. The next day, there was no news of escaped livestock. I don't know if that bull was real, a ghost, my imagination, or a phantom of my childhood. But this story is true, and it still makes my heart pound, even though it happened so many years ago. The end. Now, that how you tell the story joe i'm sorry but that was good all right everybody we're gonna get into another junk pre-recorded piece of junk probably but lady you got my vote that was a spine chilling butt tingling hair standing on end and tail
Hey everybody, this is Junk T-Man Begang. I got a little something pre-recorded for you. And this year, Spooky Spokes to me is more than just like a person or a place being haunted. It is an area. It is the past of a particular place and all the hauntings that have ever gone there and have ever uh, correlated and mingled themselves within our collective consciousness, humans, and more importantly, the way the stories tie together. With that in mind, (laughs) I'd like to talk about the Aztec Hotel. Uh, I did a little piece on San Gabriel Mission, which is something I used to drive by all the time. I used to live right on the street from, actually. And uh, the Aztec Hotel is no exception. I literally drive by this at least once a week. And when I used to live up there by it, every day. And whenever I head to Wiggins, I pass it. Whenever he comes to my place, he passes it. Whenever I head over into Pasadena, I pass it. Whenever I pass a pass, I pass it. And so on and so forth. So let's get right into the history of this place, shall we? It's called the Aztec Hotel. We're going to take ourselves back in time a little bit. Not 10,000 years, but just a little bit. The Aztec Hotel. 1925. That's right. I was already 100 years old. The Aztec Hotel opens on Route 66. Now, this hotel, it was designed and built by Robert B. Stacy Judd. A lot of names. People had a lot of names back in the day because they couldn't afford much else. A name was all you had. So... So Robert Stacy Judd designs this place and it would become supposedly a, a speakeasy during the Prohibition era, a gambling hall, I'm sure during the same era, and a mob hangout probably during the same era, uh, as well as a brothel probably during the same era. I don't think that's ever been legal here in California. And so probably in the 20s, the roaring 20s and 30s, that's probably when the Aztec was in its heyday. All this crazy stuff going down. But most famously, it's listed by the National Park Services as the first attempt to apply Mayan architecture to a modern American building. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's put a pin there and remember that fact. The facts, other facts is the hotel is also reportedly haunted. I don't know if that's a fact or an opinion. And despite being bypassed by Route 66, realignment only six years after opening, apparently it's got its fair share of ghosts. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of the ghost sightings and reportings because I don't want to think about that right now. I'm already spooked out just looking at the place. <laughs> I'll tell you that about that in a minute too. So uh, Robert Stacy Judd was inspired, as were a lot of people across Southern California and maybe even the United States in the 1920s, by Mayan and Aztec architecture. There were four books that were really uh, doing quite well in the early 1900s that inspired the craze of everybody trying to take a building and make it look all all crazy. And as for Robert Stacy Judd, uh, he went all out on the hotel's interior and exterior. If you go online and look up the Aztec Hotel, you can see, you can find pictures of it in the 1920s, um, what it looks like inside and outside, and some people have gone there recently. It's sort of creepy looking. I won't. I will be the first to admit that. Uh, my wife and I have made several jokes about it as we went by, like in our normal day to day errands. Um, you know, I think 
I would say like, hey, we should stay there. And she'd be like, oh, pff, yeah, right. It looks like the Madonna Inn or any of those other weird inns that are out on Route 66, just run down and creepy. And kind of like, uh, you know, one of those places. Let's just put it, leave it at that. The funny thing is, is that her hairdresser used to be there. Uh, this shop, Maine, I think they're going by something else now, but it used to be called Maine. Um, they have uh, offices set up in the hotel's uh, exterior suites. I think there is a antique store there. There's still a barber shop there, that hair salon, um, and like one more thing. I forget what it is. And then on the other side, on the west side of the main entrance of it, uh, exterior facade still, there is this place, a bar called the Mayan. Now, I had no idea of this place's history. That's why we joked out around about it. It looks just like a really crappy hotel that you would see somewhere a motel actually uh which is what it is and uh in our day-to-day -day errands we would you know seeing it every day we had no idea of that it, that it's actually on the uh you know historic register and that it was actually a route 66 which now makes much more sense it was a route 66 sort of attraction um it looks like one of the places where the front desk clerk kind of opens a secret door and comes into your room and steals all your organs while you're sleeping at night. And um, now uh, that I know it's on the Route 66 register, it's on a bunch of uh, local newspapers, it actually might reopen. They're actually been doing construction on it, trying to get it up to code since like 2012. Um, I began to look at it in a whole different light. And itself sort of sort of like the uh, the Tongva tribe if I end up putting the San Gabriel Mission thing in here too is a vestige from the glory days of the past of this um, this town this part of town but this one is special because it's a leftover ghost from Route 66 and the glory days of road trips and motor hotels which is where the word motel comes from uh, why uh, here's the deal here's my deal was the Aztec Hotel really the first? He's listed, like I told you, the California uh, Park Service has it listed on their website as the first building to use Mayan architecture. But we're going to go back in time and explore that idea and talk about somebody you all probably know, actually. So this will be kind of interesting. Let's go, let's go back to the 1800s, just after the Civil War. Frank Lloyd Wright, born... In Richland Center, Wisconsin, 1867. Was that like two years after the Civil War ended? Frank Lloyd Wright left his family behind and ran off to Germany with Mama Cheney in 1909. Uh, he had found work. Uh, he became a, an architect. Obviously, that's who he is. If you don't know who Frank Lloyd Wright is, go punch yourself in the face right now. Uh, he's a really famous architect, and he's got quite a few houses around Southern California which is why I chose this guy as my spooky spoke this year. Um, I'm going to skip past his whole beginnings, but he did have a rough beginning in life. He, uh, you know, he, he worked as a draftsman or a tradesman uh, in an architecture firm and then actually became an architecturist, got hired, and um, pretty successful and falls in love with this chick that he's working for. She was a client's uh, wife, 
and he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him and they both ditch their families. And this is like, uh, I think, I think it started in 1906 when he started working for her husband and you don't do stuff back then. Like people were prim and proper. You were not to, uh, run around and do, uh, extramarital stuff. So, uh, people weren't quite down with it. So they, they ran away to Germany and, um, Upon returning to the U.S. of A., the media in Oak Park, uh, Wisconsin, did not like the affair and gave, like, rode him hard. And so in 1911, I guess uh, a couple, you know, I don't know how long they had been away. They ran away in 1909. I'm guessing they were gone for a year or two. So in 1911, he builds this hideaway for him and his mistress called Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Uh, there's several documentaries on this place, how beautiful it is. Uh, the guy, Connor Oberst from Bright Eyes, wrote a song about it called Taliesin, I think. Um, and supposedly it was very beautiful. This is where he establishes his studio. He establishes a little workplace, um, a work area to, to, to work out of. Um, but he's away in Chicago overseeing construction of the Midland Gardens. What happened in his absence was the love of his life was brutally murdered by a handyman and a cook at Taliesin. Uh, Julian Carlton served up lunch to Mema and her two children and then murdered them with a hatchet, uh, chopped up the bodies, very bloody and uh, gory scene, and then sets Wright's studio on fire, killing several more of Frank Lloyd Wright's employees and staff. And today, it is still of one of Wisconsin's most brutal serial murders. So distraught and heartbroken, Frank Lloyd Wright left for California to come out here and recuperate and recover mentally. I've gone hiking to this place and mountain biking up to uh, a place that was around until the early 1900s called the White City. And it was uh, established by Thaddeus J. Lowe. They call it Echo Mountain as well. And it was like a getaway out here in the hills of Pasadena. And people used to come out here to Pasadena, to Palm Springs, uh, some places downtown uh, before it was downtown. And it was actually still kind of a countryside to the actual downtown. There was a lot of places that people would come. Uh, and San Diego has a lot of them too, the Plunge and a few other places where people would come to get the air, the West Coast air, the rejuvenation, the sunshine. And they thought it was good for your health and spirits. And no different. He came out here just for that. And while he was out here, he uh, goes to this uh, Panama, California exposition in San Diego in 1915. That's uh, five years before the uh, Aztec Hotel was built, right? So he attended that exposition in San Diego, and that exhibition actually featured a few of those books that I said earlier that were really good uh bestsellers back in the early 1900s. Um, so he sees these books and he sees all these sets that they have put up and, and um, the recreations of Mesoamerican pre-Columbian, so pre-Columbus, all this crazy uh, architecture that the Mayans, Aztecs, uh, and Olmecs and all the, the other uh uh, people down in South, mostly South America had done, but also North America, like the Yucatan and the Aztecs and stuff like that. And so, uh, what had happened is that, um, 
he gets inspired by all, by all this stuff and all these little uh, buildings and these little sets that they have. And he gets excited about Mesoamerican um, principles of sacrifice, death, and communion with the dead that revolve around the way the cities and buildings were constructed and the belief systems of the Mesoamerican tribes and, and civilizations. And he... Uh, it really strikes him just having lost someone that he loved and two children um, and all of his staff and everything like that. It really was moving to him. He actually, he actually had some really bad health. Like he couldn't see um, his mind and body started to go into the spiral. So once he came out to California, he got better. He embraced these weird um, principles and stuff like that. And he put it into his architecture. Now I know that the, uh, the Aztec hotel is listed on the national park service as the first building to use Mayan architecture in a, in a modern, modern building design. I want you to know that Ridgeland Center, Wisconsin, features one of Frank Lloyd Wright's first pre-Columbian-inspired warehouses that began construction in 1915 and was finished in 1921. And it is based off the nunnery at Tenochtitlan, I think, or Chichen Itza or something like that. It's based, or possibly even Ushmal. I forget which uh, what it's based off of. But that uh, little warehouse that's in Richland, Ridgeland Center is still there. I think I said Richland. Uh, it's in Ridgeland Center, Wisconsin. Uh, so if you get a chance, go check it out. It's like the German, A.B. German and Sons or something like that. It's like a crazy uh, German warehouse there that they're restoring, actually. And if you look at it, it is very, <coughs> excuse me, reminiscent of uh, Mayan architecture. And... Uh, he believed that American architecture should borrow from Pan-American themes, so like uh, native to America and the Americas, rather than borrow from colonial European and Spanish concepts that came over with the European explorers. So if you go to San Diego and you go to Balboa Park, there's this huge Prado there, uh, and it is basically the whole Balboa Park is very Spanish-themed. It's it, The, the architecture is beautiful. It's very European, though. Uh, and you will see that scattered throughout Southern California because the Spanish settled here. What you don't see is a lot of Native American uh, stuff that was native to the Americans in North and South America, period, at least not in the States. So uh, after, he, re after um, he relocated to Southern California, he designed and built several houses across Los Angeles and he worked in cement. He wanted it to look a lot like the uh, the temples and the pyramids of the uh, Mesoamerican peoples. And uh, it was how he reconciled his the loss that he suffered uh, there in Wisconsin at Taliesin. And so Frank Lloyd Wright is my other spooky spoke, as is the Aztec Hotel, because it itself is a ghost of the Mother Road and a ghost of uh, Route 66 and all those ghost towns and little things that existed there once and are no longer. And it's one of the very few things uh, left, and it runs right through. I live right basically kind of on Route 66, so it's interesting. The Aztec Hotel, who knew it would connect me to Frank Lloyd Wright in Wisconsin? You know what I'm saying? So thank you. And keep it spooky.
Well, junkie, don't quit your day job. And for God's sake, please don't submit any more spooky spokes. I can't take it, buddy. And also get them lips checked out. You disgusting little piece of ham with hair on it. All right. Well, let's get into our final legitimate spooky spoke called a night. Let you guys get back to whatever it is you do on these lonely Friday nights in Spookton, Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, shit. I giggled. That's very out of character for me. That's kind of spooky. Hello, Creative Writing. It's uh, No Nitrous Chris here checking in from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, for uh, this year's Spooky Spoke, I decided to do another little uh, road trip. Uh, kind of local, so not too far, but... Uh, sorry if I, I sound muffled, I still got my gear on because I just pulled off to the side of the road here to get the picture of the uh, cemetery I'm going to visit. It's the uh, Tabernacle Cemetery, established in uh, 1842. So it's supposed to be one of the most haunted cemeteries in Wisconsin, honestly. And uh, I'm not thrilled about being here, but uh, this is what I do for the show every year, so uh, I'm uh, nervously laughing about doing this. Uh, apparently, in the back corner of the cemetery... It's not real big. But uh, uh, people have been known to see uh, different shapes and uh, weird lights kind of moving around. So it's up on a hill, so I'm going to actually get my bike off the road now and uh, get my helmet and stuff off. It's, uh, it's 37 degrees out, so I'm wearing some winter gear here. It's pretty thick. So I'm going to uh, get my gear off and uh, try to walk back into the cemetery here. So uh, stay tuned. Okay, so... I just had to park the bike about a hundred yards away. Down the road, there's a little uh, entrance, like driveway turnoff for like a farmer's cornfield. And I was flat enough to park the bike, but I'm gonna do a little bit of a hike back up towards the cemetery now to see uh, see what's going on up there, if anything. But uh, it's a uh, like perfectly clear Friday night. It's almost midnight right now. So uh, we were out for a Wisconsin fish fry earlier. So if you've never experienced that before, you should uh, you should consider it. It's quite the quite the deal. But uh, I got a little bit of a walk, so I'll uh, I'll check back when I get up there. All right, I'm standing by the uh, sign for the entrance to the cemetery. Um, it's like got a goofy like embankment off the side of the road that goes up to where the sign is. So you got to do like a little like four foot climb to get up to it. And then the uh, cemetery is actually on a hill. It's only about. If I had to guess, 100 yards wide, but maybe 40 yards deep. And uh, from where I'm standing to the far back back of the cemetery where the fence is, it's probably like a 30-foot rise, so it's like a pretty steep little incline. But it's uh, it's just kind of weird being here because it is pitch black out, and I don't have a flashlight with me. But uh, I did bring the knife that uh, I got from Wiggins, so if any uh, raccoons or uh, possums want to rumble, I can throw down with that. But... Uh, normally I don't carry weapons with me, but, uh, this time of year, these, uh, cemeteries around here kind of have some weirdos hanging out in them. And this one's pretty popular for being like the haunted cemetery that people will come hang out in. So I just don't want to run into anybody and at least, you know, have a chance at something here. But, uh, I got this weird thing when they come to cemeteries, like looking at dates on the headstones 
and then like just randomly like talking to him once in a while because you figure nobody comes and visit these people you know i wish you guys could be here to just see how like dark and quiet it is there's just nothing going on there's a main uh like country highway just a little bit off in the distance and once in a while your car go past but uh you would you blink you'd go past the road the cemetery is on there's just nothing on it it's barely, it's barely a car wide i will i would barely say it's Probably a couple was a gravel road not too long ago, but uh, there was a light on a farmer's barn in the distance. It gives me about just enough flu. That sounds like coyotes or something in the distance. I don't know if you can hear that, like a pack of them yipping. Probably chasing, I don't howling, probably chasing something. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if anybody's going to be like hanging out here if that's like something they used to do in the past where like Halloween time the kids come up to the cemetery that's you know the haunted cemetery and whatever try to scare each other or, or what the deal is but I tried looking up the story on this place and uh, I couldn't find like a definite reason of why it's supposed to be so haunted uh, other than it's just old but uh, I don't know there's uh, there's definitely some history here it's just in, it's in such a weird spot like there's I don't know why they would put a cemetery here. It's not like there's a little uh, a, a little town or something nearby. It's just that old. Maybe it was a old like little farming area back in the day or something. But, yeah, I don't know. it's just weird being bordered by these all these uh, trees. Oh, ooh, ooh. something in the woods moving around. So I kind of crouched down by a bigger headstone here and just kind of hung out for a minute. I only hurt whatever I was there. I only heard it twice. So I don't know if it's just a deer sneaking around being real quiet or what it is, but I don't think I don't think it's people. They would have made more noise than that. But I'm gonna start kind of heading back down towards the road. I'm up back in the corner here, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't like this. I just get that weird feeling. There's probably nothing going on, but it's just freaky. Right, I'm gonna walk down towards the road. Yeah, fuck that. I, uh, I got down towards by the road and uh, looked behind me quick. Uh, I, I heard something kind of come tumbling through the grass a little bit. I don't know if it was a stick falling out of a tree or something, but I hang around to fucking find out. Uh, bike's a little ways, a little bit of a ways away yet. Sorry, I'm a little winded. This is fucking. I don't, I don't like this shit. Damn it. All right, I'm uh, back in my garage, which is only about like 20 minutes from that cemetery that I was hanging out in, and uh, it's getting pretty cold out. It's only about like 30 degrees ish out right now. Says my uh, KTM, my Austrian thermometer. Um, I don't know if I believe in ghosts or not, but, uh, that's, that's just weird to think that there might be things going on. 
uh, I don't know what's going on at the cemetery back there with the noises and things I was hearing. Like, you got to wonder if you don't make some of that stuff in your own head seem like more than it is. Um, I don't know if I 100% believe in ghosts or not, but I, I, uh, I, I think there's more to it than we really understand or could possibly know about. Um, just the, the feeling that you get, it's just, you know, when things are getting weird, but it was, uh, it was kind of fun to do. Like, I don't know. I don't mind going out late at night doing stuff like this kind of adventuring around. Um, it's weird to think that you might not be alone, but you know, what do you do? Yeah, it makes for a story, I guess, but I guess this is, uh, my spooky spoke submission for this year. I hope you guys enjoyed that little ride along, but uh, I don't know if I want to do another one of that style again. I think we'll we'll go back to maybe just telling some stories or visiting some uh, someplace during the day. But I had to try out the heated gear, and what better time to do it than a, on a 30 degree Wisconsin night in a haunted cemetery? So, uh, hope you guys enjoyed the story. We'll uh, talk to you later. seeing is um, so far so good in Guggenheim uh, out there at that hotel we got a guy freezing out there in the snow after hacking his family to pieces trying to uh, overcome a conversation with the ghost I guess I don't understand that part uh, up in Portland we got Grim going down we got a uh, young handsome detective taking on fairy tale monsters all over the city and, uh, oh, over there in Salem, we got some witch trials going on. Uh, what else we got over here, Brian? Uh, if we could swing around to the east here, we got... Holy shit, is that... Is that that motherfucker Van Helsing? Get away from my friend! Take that, you piece of... Oh, God, he, sh he shot a crossbow at us! Oh, God. Oh, God, Brian. We're going down. We're going down. Oh, you're good. Happy Halloween. Don't go to Dr. Acula. He sucks out. All right, everybody. That's a man, a spooky spoke. I'd like to thank both people that participated this year. One of you is going to win top prize. The other one's going to win the other top prize. Well, it's top in my eyes, but we'll let the, we'll let the regular crew sort everything out next week alright please return to our show next week when we do spooky spoke nah, we don't do spooky spoke next week we get back to the regular word of the week we get back to regular motorcycle related stuff and uh, I'd like to thank a shout out to all of our patrons if you want to become a patron go to www.patreon.com forward slash creative writing check out all the different tiers support at as little as a dollar as much as a million dollars I do want to say thank you to our patrons 
continuing support and making this show a possibility. All of you, past and present, goddammit. Alright, Junkie also left me a note. Check out Field Initiative Knives. Damn near save Sing Sam's ass from a goddamn possum. Wily Raccoon. Also, check out Jay the Flying Man. They should be back on next week. And if you got any gumption left in you after this uh, weekend, after this show, go go on out to Hooligan Camp El Mirage. It's the only goddamn place in California that ain't burning. And as for those wildfires, all of our friends being affected by those bastards, our heart goes out to you. Evacuate if you can. If you can't get help, help others. We gotta do something about this. Get out there and ride the last ride you can ride before Mother Nature turns her wicked cold titty, sprays all of us with the white winter of Agamemnon. I just made that up. I'm trying to be spooky. least all the music of this week's show was played by Billy and the Butt Faces. You can find it on Wiener Dog Records uh, and the name of the entire track. It was, it's a 90 minute long track named Fart Fart Dumb Dumb Butt Butt Stupid Stupid Give It Some Throttle Brap Brap Send It Hold My Beer dot com and that is also the website where you can buy this album if you so desire. everybody turn some wrenches tip over some benches